Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Matthew chapter 4, we're going to go through a bunch of passages in Matthew, and we're going to talk about um, the third kind of aspect of what we're framing our church around. So if you're new or you've missed a couple of weeks, we're in a series called Practicing the Way of Jesus, and this is a long series. We're going to spend uh, probably a year or more looking at this, and what, we, what we're talking about as practicing the way of Jesus is becoming apprentices of Jesus, disciples. And to be an apprentice of Jesus is to rearrange or order your life around three goals. One, to be with Jesus. Two, to become like Jesus. So the last few weeks we've talked about those two. Our goal as followers of Jesus is to first learn to be with him. To change habits and behaviors and develop practices that begin to allow us to learn to be with Jesus in our everyday, ordinary life, wherever we find ourselves. We've talked about our Catholic friends called it contemplative tradition where Brother Lawrence uh, is famous for talking about, about practicing the presence of God. He was a dishwasher in a monastery in the 15th century, and he learned that he could be washing dishes in the kitchen and be as close as to God as anywhere else um, uh, in his life. And that's the goal, is that we learn, um, whether we're uh, working in the business world, we're students or teachers, whether we're retired, we're struggling um, to find a job, stay-at-home moms, wherever you find yourself in the spectrum of humanity and life, you can learn where you are to be with Jesus in your everyday life. You can be um, watching your kids at the playground, enjoying deep intimacy with the presence of God in that moment. And we learn over a long period of time how to do that. Be with Jesus. This is the first call of discipleship. Um, second is to become like Jesus, to become like our our rabbi, and this is the expectation for all disciples following a rabbi, is that they not only live their life with him, they learn to become like him, and that takes a lot of change. We talked about this last week, that in order for us to become like Jesus, there needs to be massive overhaul in our lives, not just a little self-help here and there, not just adding Jesus' character once in a while to conversations we have, but actually uh, seeing radical retransformation within us, and that takes a lot of things. And last week we introduced a spiritual formation paradigm. And it was pretty heady. Anyone think there was a lot of information last week other than me? Yeah, three of us. Cool. Okay, so the rest of you are way beyond my capacity for learning. God bless you. But we're going uh, to spend, and we, talk, we talked about how we change. We change old uh, narratives, false beliefs with teaching, and habits with practices, and relationships with community, and the environment shapes us no longer, but the spirit shapes us over a long period of time. It's an oversimplification, but um, in January, we're going to break that down over five weeks. Um, so each of these categories, we'll spend months talking through ways to learn to be with Jesus, like silence and solitude, prayer, fasting, various spiritual disciplines. We'll talk about how do we become like Jesus and experience transformation and do the hard work. One thing I want to really, I'm excited to teach through is a kind of a mini-series on emotional health that actually we, many of us have great spiritual health, maybe even physical health, but there's this whole emotional unhealth that we have. And without emotional health, we'll never be spiritually healthy. And so we'll spend probably six to seven weeks learning to disciple our emotions to Christ. And if anyone is a millennial or knows a millennial, you're like, amen. Because <laughs> your feelings are not Lord of your life. Jesus is. And this generation loves to make arguments based on feelings. And we need to learn to 
feelings are great, they're helpful, they're useful, but we need to um, disciple them to Jesus and take them captive like our thoughts. Cool? So there's a whole bunch of stuff there. Today, another big overview of the third goal, to do what Jesus did. The first two, I realize, really comfortable with. Learning spiritual disciplines to be with Jesus. Yeah, I could practice silence and solitude, fasting, Sabbath, um, reading scripture. These are all things I've learned along the way. Those are um, not very intrusive in many ways. Would you agree? Like, yeah, we can pick up some new habits here and there, get rid of old habits. Becoming like Jesus, a little more challenging. Like dealing, I talked about dealing with anger last week. Like you don't just read the Bible and your anger's gone. And I've, I, I, was, I shared this story and I have a, like a disclaimer or, or like an edit to it. But I shared this story about, oh, coming up forward and getting prayer and your temper being gone, right? I talked about partnering with God in that transformation over a long period of time is really how that transformation tends to work when it comes to character. You guys with me on this? Were you here last week? Some of you were. Some of you were practicing your dodgeball skills, and God bless you, um, especially your house church. I don't think any of you guys were in the service. You guys were just training. Just kidding. Just kidding. Well played, Sarah. Well played. Um, but my mom called me on Monday, and she goes, Darren, you told that story, but I got to tell you, you know your grandpa. My grandpa died years ago, and uh, he had a temper because he was a race car driver and a construction worker in his life. So my mom's like, yeah, he would fly off the handle. And Darren, I had the same temper that he, your, your grandpa had. But when I was 19, I went to a, she was, she was a Presbyterian growing up. I went to a Pentecostal church service where they came, they called people forward for anything. They asked me what I wanted prayer for. And I said, I wanted prayer for my quick temper um, and my anger. And it was taken away. And, and I know I've never seen my mom lose her temper or, or display inappropriate anger ever in my entire life for 33 years. And I was like, whoa, whoa, that's crazy, Mom. Like, will you pray for me? And, um, <laughs> but I felt like I wanted to challenge our church and recognize, actually, those things can be healed. And that, like, the testimony is my mom. So I said, she was in the first service. Anyone want prayer for a quick temper, come forward, and my mom will pray for you. And there was a line out the door. But anyways, um, <laughs> so those things, though, we, most of discipleship focuses on those two, be and become like. The third tends to be the great omission, great omission of the church, isn't it? To continue to do the things that Jesus did. And so I know as I talk about this, it's going to be challenging. I know because of the first service <laughs> and the, the, the awkward laughter and the silence. And so I'm, I'm giving you like a really big preface and a, a disclaimer to this, but I really want you to let go of your old way of thinking and take on some new thinking for what it means to be a disciple. You good? So let's frame it in the scriptures. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. Um, we're going to look at Jesus' view of discipleship in the narratives, or in the gospel of Matthew. And then we'll, we'll do some practical teaching. So Matthew chapter eight, uh, 4, verse 18. As Jesus was w walking along um, the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother, Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Or another translation says, I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Chapter 5, verse 1 says this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, sat down. His disciples came to him. And he began to teach them. And then it's the great Sermon on the Mount for the next two chapters, uh, three chapters. 
So in in this particular passage, Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee. We've talked about this extensively. He sees some guys, Andrew and Peter, and he says, come follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Now, that's not some cheesy joke in the first century. It's a first century idiom, meaning I will make you a great teacher. Fishers of men was a phrase in the first century for, uh, for teachers that have, had a capacity to reach people's minds and imagination. And Jesus is essentially saying, I'm a great teacher. I will make you like me. You will do what I do. And, it, and what you see is the very next thing is he calls some other guys. He heals the sick and then he sits down with this crowd and he teaches the greatest sermon ever heard in human history, the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' uh, kingdom manifesto and what it means to be human, essentially. It's this great sermon that if we could just live this one sermon out to its capacity, humanity and all of the world would begin to experience radical reconciliation and healing across the world and maybe even the cosmos. Because we're talking about Jesus reframing what it means to be human in one sermon. And, and, and Jesus essentially says to his followers, uh, I will make you fishers of men, essentially saying, I will, you will do what I do. This is the call to discipleship. And this is what we framed it as. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the things he did. And he, he trusts these fishermen, uneducated, ordinary people, to have capacity to do what he did, including teaching, like Jesus taught. Are you with me? So these guys drop their nets and they follow Jesus wherever he is. And fishermen would be on the lower scale in the social, social class, um, and they would, they would have dropped it for lots of reasons, and we, John Mark talked about this, that the main reason they would drop their nets is a rabbi has invited them to become disciples. It wasn't because he had a halo and he was blonde hair, blue-eyed in Palestine in the Middle East. That's not the picture of Jesus. We need to eliminate that image of Jesus. It needs to look more like a Middle Eastern, because he was Middle Eastern. And he was born um, to poor peasants, mother and father, who didn't even have the proper sacrifice for, uh, uh, for a, a young male firstborn. They had to use pigeons, according to the law. That was for the poor. <laughs> so our King of kings and Lord of lords, who comes in a manger, a barn, and it's put in a feeding trough, born to peasant parents, is the Christmas story we celebrate by buying billions of dollars worth of stuff every year. Okay, that's a little dig at the American way um, that I'm guilty of, so I'm, I'm pointing fingers at myself. He says, you can be like me. So they follow Jesus. They give up their nets because the rabbi said, um, follow me. Uh, but there's other stories. Go to Matthew chapter 8 of people wanting to follow Jesus. Matthew chapter 8, um, verse 18. I love this one. Um, and there's so much context to this. But when Jesus, verse 18, chapter 8, where Jesus saw the crowd around him. So his ministry begins to get successful. He sees the crowd, and he says, uh, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake where the Gentiles are. Not a lot of people would do that. Then it says, then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So this is what would-be disciples would do. He's eager to follow Jesus, and a teacher of the law meant he was educated, and he was in a higher social class, especially from the fishermen. So he's eager to follow Jesus. And Jesus has this line that is a dig to class, class systems. Foxes have dens and birds have nests and the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
And then there's another person. Another disciple said to him, hey, Lord, first, let me go bury my father. And he says, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. Other passages, so what you see is people are, are dropping their nets. They're uneducated. They're ordinary folks. People are teachers of the law in a higher class system, uh, eager to follow him, and he's giving them pushback. Some people don't have, uh, have to uh, rearrange their life. They're thinking they have other priorities in life than to just follow Jesus. Let me go take care of this thing. He'll say, if you don't pick up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy. If you don't hate your brother, mother, father, sister, you're not worthy of the kingdom or following me. So there's this, this call to discipleship that's costly. Writers throughout history have talked about the cost of discipleship. Bonhoeffer is a classic one. And, and, and what you read in these stories are, are people in different places following Jesus in different capacities. So you have these poor fishermen, these wealthy teachers of the law. And then chapter 9, verse 9, um, probably one of the most remarkable stories of following Jesus, other than the demon-possessed guy, um, is this guy. Um, as Jesus, verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now, real quick context. A tax collector, a Jewish tax collector in the first century would be the equivalent of a Jewish informant for Nazi Germany. It was that harsh. They would have seen a tax collector conspiring with Rome, the oppressor, as a traitor, his whole family was excommunicated from the temple worship, from fellowship with any proper Jew. And so, and there's all sorts of issues you see with this, this, this guy who's conspiring with Rome. And Jesus basically selects what in first century context would be um, somebody who needs a lot of healing to follow him. That's a polite way to say it. Just, just you, like we don't even have time to go into the... the the, the, the person on the bottom who's the anti-Jewish way is included in the inner circle to be with Jesus, become like him, and do what he did. Again, just look at the scale. You have fishermen, you have various pe- people in different stages of life, and people who are clearly sinners who need radical healing invited to follow Jesus where they are. You guys with me? Can you see it? But this, I love what's next. Let's just finish this part. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, hey, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. Um, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So, um, there's so much context for eating meals in the first century. Jesus, this was a, a messianic declaration that those that are far off from God are invited into the inner circle. Like every time Jesus eats with a sinner or tax collector, it was a statement to the religious elite that the boundaries of who gets in and who gets out are done. The Messiah forgives and embraces all. It's, it's a powerful tool he uses to build and extend his kingdom one meal at a time. And in this case, not just meals and forgiveness and extension of, of ministry, but actual, actual discipleship. He invites the least likely folks to be a part of the process of becoming like him and doing the things that he did. You with me? 
The story of discipleship continues. I'm just giving you a quick outline. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Let's look at this. So Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When he said, uh, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. So in other words, Jesus at this moment begins to minister in different towns, and he's like, it's too much work for one person. I need to, uh, there's way too much work. And he's like, pray that God would send out. And that word send out is, is really hard uh, to translate in English. It comes from the Greek word, which was translated into Latin, which comes to the English. And the word means missionary. Pray that God would send out missionaries to do what he's doing. Essentially what Jesus does, and, and look, so that's what he says. And then Jesus does this, verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus called his 12 uh, to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and illness, to do the things he was doing. Verse 7. As you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal those who are ill, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. So in this passage, what Jesus says is the work is too much. I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll call my disciples to continue the work I'm doing. And if you, would, if you were to go through chapter 8, 9, and 10 and highlight the stories of what Jesus does in those two chapters, Jesus heals the sick, casts out demons, proclaims the gospel, and touches lepers and cleanses lepers. In other words, what Jesus does in this moment is simply share the ministry they have already observed in him. This is what discipleship means. This is what following Jesus, the, the goal is to get to this place where, where we're sent out to do the things that Jesus did. Are you with me? We're going to keep going after discipleship for just a little bit. So, uh, and, and I love what he says. He says, freely you've received. So he, he assumes by just being with Jesus, you're becoming a little more like him, that you've received something from him. And then the expectation is just give away whatever it is you've received. And this is how it should work today. And if you've been here for a year, six months, three months, you've already received great teaching by far, especially from Bill Doctrine. You've received great teaching. You've received um, uh, a constant reminder of the kingdom message. This is not pragmatic. We're not giving you five steps to make your marriage better. We're pro proclaiming the gospel. We're teaching the way of Jesus in the scriptures. Expository preaching. We're giving you tools for life. You've experienced teaching here. If you, some of you have received rent here because you, you couldn't afford it. Some of you have met your spouses in this church. Some of you have experienced real community because of house church. Some of you have received generosity. Some of you have participated in the way of the kingdom by giving, and you've received by giving. You, if you've been here for any amount of time, you've received something, give that away. That's, it. That's what discipleship is about. That's how this whole thing is designed to work, that we don't come to a community to receive. By, by being a follower of Jesus, you've already received more than enough salvation, intimacy with the triune God who's dancing around and inviting you into perfect loving relationship. Inner healing, power from on, on high to do the things Jesus would do if he were in your situation. This is, this is the call to discipleship. Are you with me? And so we, we see, and 
what we see is this cost. And I would love for us as a church, it'd be so much easier for me to, to just build a community around being with and becoming like. Because that's safe. But this category is where it gets really challenging to do the things that Jesus did. Because it comes with all sorts of excuses. It comes with all sorts of doubt and disbelief, which we'll talk about in just a second. But it also comes in the face of our culture. You see, our culture has, has made you believe that everything in this world is designed to be about you. Individualism. It's like we can't even see left from right without thinking about our own needs. And now in previous, in other cultures and previous generations had group mentality. And the Bible is written into a group way of thinking, being a part of a community, a town or a people. We don't have that anymore. It's based on your needs, your preferences, your comforts, your dreams, your desires, everything. So even as we talk about discipleship, we love be with Jesus because it's focused on ourselves. We even love become like Jesus, um, even though some of it is community. It, it's easy to focus on these two things because it's built around me. But when we start giving and doing the things of Jesus, that's where it gets hard because it's other-focused. And discipleship is always other-focused because the goal of discipleship is to do the things that Jesus did. Not just to be with him or to become like him, but to do the things that Jesus did. And so let's just go to one more passage. You guys with me on this? Matthew chapter, I'm trying to hold myself together. Matthew chapter 28. <clears throat> I'm like, where is it going to come out? Matthew 28. Um, this is the last passage, the last uh, message to the followers of Jesus. Matthew writes as, as Jesus is a rabbi. And the rabbi's last word in Jewish context is the most important word. So the last parable in Matthew's gospel that he teaches is sheep and goats, that we will be known by our love for the least of these brothers and sisters of ours. So that, the final judgment, it's a judgment parable, is the disciples of Jesus will be known for how they find the divine Jesus in their brothers and sisters and how they take care of everyone's needs. And it's, it's not something that we'll figure out on the day of judgment. You know you're a sheep or a goat by how you live. It's easy, you with me? That's just a freebie for you. You're welcome for that one. The, this one is, is so beautiful because in context, Jesus was crucified, flogged, beaten, betrayed, crucified. His disciples, most of them, saw this. They've seen a crucifixion in their context. But also, he was raised from the dead. So he came back, to, he resurrected from the dead and shows himself to his followers and it says that uh, he's been raised. And so the Great Commission, verse 16, it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Just, just think about this for one moment. The eleven disciples who were with Jesus, that were on the pro becoming like him, even doing the things that he was doing, in their various capacities and stages of life, after they watched the guy get killed brutally and raised from the dead, physically seeing him, the scriptures, the holy word of God wants you to know at this epic moment, Jesus' last words, that even Jesus' closest friends who were with him in flesh and blood doubted as they worshipped him. Doubt is not the great enemy of faith. There's plenty of room for doubters. 
if, if Thomas didn't doubt, we wouldn't know which was, which, where to go. We wouldn't know the way, the truth, or the life. When he's, he says, you know the way, and Thomas is like, no, I don't know, actually. And he's like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> Thank you. And because of that, we know. Like, we wouldn't, we would, like, what do you mean? How do I get to the Father? Is it seven steps, three steps? What is it? I love this. Like, there's so much room in the church that actually we can be people who doubt and do the things of Jesus at the same time. Oh, I don't feel capable, good enough. Like, I've been trained. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Yeah. Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Yeah. Great, you've got enough. But I doubt. Great, so did, so did his disciples. And he used them to build the largest movement in human history with a billion people in this institutional organic thing called the church. And these people were doubting. Great. So he says, then Jesus comes and he says, let me, let me address all your doubts so you have perfect reassurance and clarity about what to do. That's not what he says. <laughs> he says, uh, let me give you confirmation to the fleece that you laid out. That's not what he says. Let me just wait till it's convenient for you and you have enough money, and you've paid off your student loans. Then, then, and you got the training from the, the college, you know, your MDiv, and then, 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 okay, then we'll get serious. No, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So this is the pattern. Jesus comes onto the scene as a rabbi, calls some guys to himself, Peter and John. And he says, come follow me. And as they're following him, they're learning to be with him. They're living with him. They become like him. They, begin, they experience transformation. And Jesus gets to this moment where he's like, wow, it's too much work. Peter, go over there, heal that girl. She's sick. Hey, John, would you go down to Bethsaida and um, cast out some demons and preach the gospel? Hey, Andrew, go and teach the way over there in uh, Corazon. And and what you have is Jesus doing what sociologists have pointed out for years, which is really the four stages of apprenticeship. And these are the four stages of apprenticeship. Um, number one, stage one is I do, you watch. Stage two, I do, you help. Stage three, you do, I help. Stage four, you do, I watch. So Jesus maps this out in the Gospel of Matthew. You see this in his life that the point of calling disciples is to eventually become the kinds of people that do the things that Jesus did. So I was talking to a guy who's studying sports science in our church, and he's got a, a residency at Long Beach Memorial. His goal isn't to be a resident there or for a year, just a year. It's to become a doctor. You don't go into a residency program as a medical student uh, to learn the lingo of Gray's Anatomy or whatever it is. Like eventually you graduate to be a doctor. Just like if you're a barber or own a hair, you want to own a hair salon, you don't like apprentice another barber to just be an apprentice your whole life. Eventually, you learn the skills, the technique, to go off and do the thing that you've been apprenticing for. Same with a plumber or an electrician. And for some reason, we've missed this in the church, that this is the call, this is Jesus' strategy, that we want to just attend gatherings, but that we would become the kinds of people that are trusted to do the things that Jesus did in their everyday, ordinary life, wherever you find yourself, because you might start off as an informant and come into it with a lot of broken yet maybe useful skills that were 
once wrongfully used in the wrong ways, but Jesus over time will work that out, but you are on journey and process to do the things that Jesus did. And all of it. And this is what we see. That Jesus gets to the point with his disciples where he said, great, you're, you now carry on the work. Make disciples. Continue to do the things I was doing. What exactly did Jesus do? do? He ushered in the kingdom of God. That's the, the framework for what Jesus did. His ministry, if one, one phrase is he, he, he brought the kingdom. Uh, he brought God's way of life the way it was intended to be in the first place. He made it available for everyone. And he, he invites his apprentices, you and I, to continue his mission, ministry, and work. Now, I want to put something on the screen to talk through you just briefly because it's a very vague thing, building the kingdom. But if you study the scriptures, if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, here are 11 categories and ways that Jesus' work worked itself out in bringing the kingdom. Number one, Jesus uh, was preaching the gospel. Number two is he was teaching the way. The difference between the two. Preaching the gospel, uh, Jesus would announce the arrival of God's kingdom. So there's a difference between preaching and teaching. And you actually see this a lot between Bill and I. Bill is an extraordinary teacher. This sermon is teaching. But when I really, like, this is harder for me to teach than it is to preach. I, preaching is announcing, it's making announcements, moving people towards transformation, a decision to follow Jesus, or for me, mobilize the church on mission. That's, uh, that's my calling, I feel. As, a, as even, like, I, I, I have a harder time trying to teach the Bible. I have a much easier time preaching. And there's, I can, this is a whole, whole other thing to talk through. But teaching, what you have, are gifted teachers who will, like John Mark or Bill Doctrum, who will come up here and just lay out some crazy things and, and instruct you on how to live. And Jesus not only preached and announced the arrival of the kingdom and called for transformation and response, he also taught. Sermon on the Mount is, the exact, is that thing. It's the sermon. It's instructions for new life as humans. Are you with me? So these are, those are two different categories. The third is healing the sick, casting out demons. Fourth, eating and drinking with people far from God. Read, just read the Gospel of Luke and how often Jesus is eating a meal with somebody. And I just already mentioned the significance of eating meals, but this is one of the primary ways Jesus brought the kingdom, through meals. A lot of action happens around there. Um, doing justice, peacemaking, praying, standing up against religious and political corruption. Can I get an amen? Um, or grumbling rumbling over that. People, I've been talking to people, and they're like, gosh, it's so chaotic right now. Time in our culture is so chaotic. Politicians and people of power and position are falling, falling to immorality like never before seen. Um, and it's people without a voice are now beginning to take down people that, have, that hold the microphone, right? Um, and, and then you see the turbulent times between nations and politics. And um, I'm actually, I feel like this is the best time to be church. It's never been, I'm not, af- I'm not afraid at all about what's, I used to think, oh gosh, how, how's my son going to grow up in this type of environment? Now I'm like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what the world is hungry for. Like, people want to know how to stay married. The, the Bible helps them. 
People want to know um, uh, if there are leaders or people that actually say something and mean it. Jesus taught, like, yes, be yes. People want, people, like, people want to see leaders in positions where there's not, there's no, there's not, they're so above reproach, there's like this massive, like, gap, like the size of the Grand, Can- Grand Canyon between accusation and reality, like, because their lifestyle has been arranged to purity and holiness. Like, I, I'm not afraid, I'm like, this is our time to renew and redeem and reveal the alternative way to be people of character, to stand on solid ground. I feel like the best thing we can offer this uh, culture and society is be- people that become non-anxious presence. Like, people are full of anxiety. We're full of anxiety. Wouldn't it be amazing if we're training people to be people of peace? that come into the office reading the headlines, and you're like, yeah, I know, but let me tell you about where this whole thing's going. We've been here before. The world has been here before. And the church thrives when it becomes the the witnessing body. And we don't do that through standing on soapboxes. We do that through living such redemptive lives that uh, people are drawn to the center well, which is the living Christ. So, Standing up against religious and political corruption, we do that outside of social media. Let me just encourage you to do that outside of social media. Okay? Like, I'm unfollowing all of you that are sending me this junk. Gosh, and it's not the end times, guys. It's been the end times for 2,000 years since the day the Spirit fell on Peter. Like, that, that, that ushered in the end times, just so you know. When did it be- It began 9 o'clock in the morning, the first time the Holy Spirit fell on the church. We have been in the end times. You with me? Some of you are not. You're like, wait, did did I get left behind? No! (laughs) (laughs) Ah! Lastly, I could talk, uh, we gotta do a series on that, like just talking through that. Lastly, making other disciples. Also, if you're concerned about what Bible version we're preaching, um, let me just tell you, there's so many other things to worry about, okay? I totally get it. If you come from a context where it's like there's actually a, a better English version than NIV, um, every single Bible translation that you have that's in English is a translation of a translation, period. And so, it, 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 like, going back to Greek and Hebrew is really important for preaching, but reading the Bible, I don't care what version you read, just read it. could be like the firefighter version if, that's, if there's a fire. <laughs> Just read the Bible. Okay, cool. So if you're, you're an apprentice of Jesus, your end goal is to do all these things. Look at that list. It got so quiet, right? Yeah, okay, so let me, let me so this is where I lose everyone. Because oftentimes you're like, yeah, I get Jesus as an example on how to live, but he was God, right? Isn't that the excuse right here? He's God, and that's what the Enlightenment did. They argued that the miracles were evidence of Jesus' divinity that he was God and, in, and proof that he was God. But actually, the gospel writers make it perfectly clear over and over again that God became flesh and blood and gave up some of that God cardness, if that's a thing. Philippians chapter 2, he emptied himself, right? And the gospel writers want you to know that he was fully human, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The answer to how Jesus, Jesus did all of those things is through the Holy Spirit. 
And not only that, you can't just say, oh, it's because he was God. Because the church, for two, three, hundreds of years, and in the Bible, they do the things that Jesus did right away. Actually, within 50 days of his death, 50 days of, of denying Jesus raised from the dead, within 50 days, Peter is healing people and preaching the gospel and teaching the way and standing up to political and religious. I mean, he's, he's just going for it. That was 50 days. So Peter was not God and neither was John and neither were any of the people in the Bible that we read about outside of Jesus. But they did the things that Jesus did. For 2,000 years, we have been seeing these things done and the answer isn't because they're God. It's because they're doing it the way Jesus did it, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did what he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. The church and the disciples in the New Testament did what Jesus did through the power of the Holy Spirit. You and I can do the things that Jesus did through the power of the Holy Spirit. And let me reiterate this. No matter where you are, what life stage you're in, or how long you've been following Jesus, you are, as you are, invited to do the things that Jesus did. I feel like he's looking for willing participants. Like, I, I, I honestly am at the point where I feel like God is just looking for a church that's willing to breathe, and he'll bless it. <laughs> like, like, just willing to say, sure, I'll pray. I don't believe in this stuff, but I'll pray out of obedience. I feel like the Lord's just going to bless it. I feel like it's that, in the United States, it has become so powerless, the church, that he's looking for people that are willing to stand in faith in the things of the New Testament, and he will bless it. But we have to train ourselves. You guys good? So this is the invitation. This is kind of a massive overview. We're going to go through this in detail. We'll talk about each of these things, how we grow in them, how to do them. Um, so I want to give you some encouragement, okay, some help. Anyone feel overwhelmed by this? Because I get paid to do this, and I'm overwhelmed by that list. <laughs> Let me just end with a couple of encouragement. Number one, know your stage of discipleship and season of life. Um, three goals, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what he did. This is not a three-step formula, but this is a progression. And um, I don't want anybody thinking that, it, maybe you're like me. When I was younger, I would see this list. Can we go back to that list? And I'd be like, great, this week, all of them. <laughs> Tuesday, I'm like six in. By Thursday, I'm so burned out, I don't even know if Jesus is real. Anyone? Anyone relate? So, like, there's a process. And, like, this is what we do over a long period of time. Some of you will lean towards some of those things. Some of you are so good at prophesying in prayer. Some of you are so good at standing up to religious injustice or corruption or political. Some of you are really good at making disciples. We're all called to do all these things, but know where you're at. Don't, and also don't think, well, uh, preaching is what Darren does. All of us are called to preach. Uh, and, and this whole thing is set up to not empower you unless you take it intentionally, unless you make it intentionally. Um, the second thing is season of life. Know what season you're in. This is, I feel like if there's anything I can teach you of what I'm learning, it's this. What season are you in? If you're a young man with two new kids, or two kids and a wife, um, which is me, uh, you're not in the same season as you once were when you were working for the church with your spouse who also works 60 plus hours a week with no kids running at full speed ahead. You can't possibly, with two kids 
and a marriage that's 10 years old continue to do the things you did when you were single or not married or when you just didn't have any kids? So if anyone's here, a mom with kids or you're about to have kids, you're in a stage of life that requires obedience to paying attention to the most important thing, your marriage and your kids. Please don't go out discipling the nations today. (laughs) Disciple the nations by raising up the most amazing kids who love Jesus. And along the way, because the translation for therefore go is therefore as you go. It's the assumption is you're going. As you go or in your going, when you're at the playground with your kids, um, maybe it's share your faith. Maybe it's heal the sick. Maybe it's cast out demons. Lord knows there's a lot of kids with demons at the playground. Little Johnny doesn't have behavior modification problems. He has a demon, <laughs> and he needs to be exercised. Just kidding. I'm not kidding, though. Like, <laughs> there might be some exorcisms happening at Livingston Park, or, or Cherry Park especially. Uh, um, I, I just, why I share that with you is, like, I, I'm realizing, like, my tendency is to run hard, work hard, run faster, work harder. And um, in the last three months, like, we sold our house, we moved, we had another kid, we're learning how to have, be a parent to two. Um, we started a house church. We relaunched our entire church around a new vision. Some big transitions, like, totally big transitions. Some of those are top stressors in general, moving, top stressor. Having another kid, top stressor. Postpartum depression, that's stressful in a marriage, right? Like, so um, I'm just learning from my past that every year around this time, I get so burnt out by trying to run really hard, thinking that it's about me and I have to model it. And the word from the Lord every single morning, other than he loves you, but I'm his favorite, is, um, (laughs) just kidding, not kidding, but uh, is slow down. Slow down, like, and, and I feel like this is for a whole church. And, and that tends to be how it works for me, at least. Like, I experience it late, and I'm trying to name it. So I'm going to teach on hurry in two weeks. Um, my friend, John Mark, teach, taught this sermon that wrecked me, and, and I still don't have a grasp on it. So I thought, why not teach it? Because you, you learn 90%. You retain 90% of information when you teach it. So not for your sake, but for my sake, I want to teach on hurry. Um, because I just believe that what we need to do is not more, but actually slow down to become aware of the things that God wants to do in us. And I think in that slowing down, we'll actually see more of this, go back to the other slide, um, happening because we're paying attention. You guys with me on that? So know what season you're in and have freedom. I want to give permission to all the young new families, like don't strive. Slow down. Um, And I don't know what season. I was just talking to another uh, couple in our church who, uh, her, she's a daughter, her, her father's 91, and now she's caring for the 91-year-old. She's got grown-up kids with grandkids, and, and that's a new season. And so she's in a season of caring for her dad. So where are you? And give yourself permission to be there and know that Jesus will use you wherever you are, as you are. Um, second, do not underestimate the power of just practicing the way of Jesus in the community. So 1 Peter 2, I love this. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that they 
though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So the vision is live in such a powerful way together in community and house churches that the outsiders will just want to be like you. Isn't that cool? Let me tell you something. That's how the church exploded in the first and second and third and fourth century. They lived so countercultural that the culture were like, hey, we want some of that. And they joined the church. Imagine that. Imagine that. Dallas Willard says this. A couple more things. Are you guys okay? Don't, oh, yeah, what was the, well, sorry, did that go fast? Do not underestimate the power of just practicing the way of Jesus in community, period. You're welcome, Susie. Do you need, if you want my notes, I'll just send you them. Anyone that wants them, we, we can post them online, so it just let us know. Okay. Thanks, Susie. Uh, can I talk about Dallas real quick, Dallas? Really? Okay, good. There is a special, you, you won't have time to write this down. There is a special evangelistic work to be done, of course, and there are special callings to it. But if those in the churches really are enjoying fullness of life, evangelism will be unstoppable and largely automatic. The local assembly, for its part, can then become an academy where people throng from the surrounding community to learn how to live. It will be a school of life, for a disciple is a pupil a student, where all aspects of that life seen in the New Testament records are practiced and mastered under those who have themselves mastered them through practice. Only by taking this as our immediate goal can we intend to carry out the Great Commission. In layman's terms, terms if we just actually did the, if we learned to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what he did, and we enjoy, I love this, enjoy the fullness of life and what that means, what Jesus comes to offer. People are going to be coming in droves to learn to live life the way we live. This is the redemptive presence the church is called to become. And when I say the church, I don't mean institutionalizing it through a program or some website or some great gathering. I mean, brothers and sisters, you taking serious the call that is in your life to inhabit the things that Jesus invites you to inhabit so that, and to live such a full life together that people will want to be like you. Cool? So where do we start? Number, number three is start with some basics. I want to invite you to eat with people from afar. People, eat with people far from God. I, I messed this up in the last service. I said eat people. And so <laughs> we're starting the Walking Dead ministry. And so I love, there's a book, A Meal with Jesus. And look at, he, he notes this, Luke 19, verse 10. What did Jesus come to do? The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. How did, he, how did he do it? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. There's so much to be said. I don't have time to go into this. Practice hospitality. Be known for radical hospitality. One of the challenges I've been thinking about is our house church and um, our, our friends in Portland, their missional community are like our house churches. They meet every week. But once a month, they don't meet as a house church or missional community. They scatter into their own homes. And in, intentionally, during the time they normally meet as a house church, they meet in their homes with neighbors and, peop- and coworkers that are far from God. So their way of reaching their city, Portland, is by coming together three times a month. And then once a month, they're scattering and ensuring that they're, they're going after neighbors who are not Christian. They're going after um, coworkers who are not Christian, friends, uh, moms from school. It's amazing. I was like, that's what we need to start doing. Like, how do we change Long Beach? One meal at a time. 
side note, Chipotle is going down on Pine and, 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 uh, and Third, right by my office. I really like, I don't know if you know this, but like there's four pokey restaurants downtown where the garden office is. And now, as of this week, Chipotle is literally across the street from our office. And I, I've never felt more loved by God than ever before. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, I want you to take risks. So recognize where you are, what season of life. Practice the way of Jesus together. Start with some basics. Like, just start with choosing to have meals with people far from God. But brothers and sisters, you've received healing in this church. People have been healed. Start healing the sick. You want me to train you the way Jesus trained the, his disciples? Real quick. This is Jesus' prayer for a blind guy. See. That's the prayer. How about, how about like, a little more difficult things other than blindness? Uh, yeah, okay, like uh, paralysis. Walk. Get up. Two words. This is, like, practice healing the sick. Some of you need to do that. Prophesy. Speak hope, honor, and healing over people. Oh, man, don't, in our culture of opinion, why not have a culture of revelation? Pray that every morning, wake up in your quiet time, write down, pray for some of your coworkers, write down some words of encouragement for them and just drop it off at their desk and say, I just want to bless you today with a couple of thoughts. Affirming them. That affirmation is the language of the kingdom. Are you with me? Take some steps forward. Start, pray for one person a week to be healed. 52 weeks, you might see one. Amazing, you went forward. So good, you're doing the things that Jesus did. That's scary as heck, isn't it? Is anyone scared by that? Anyone afraid of praying for somebody on the street for healing? Great, you raise your hand, you're all gonna do it this week. Because <laughs> I love what, what um, I'll just end with this. What, I love what Alan Scott said. He's like, when, when there's fear in our hearts, it's almost like uh, what a scarecrow should be for ravens or blackbirds or crows. That's where the fruit is. If, if, if birds were smart, they would see the scarecrow and be like, that's where there's a harvest. If you begin to feel fear when you see someone on the street, go right to that person. That's where the harvest is. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.